August 31st, 2023, full moon, lunar observance day. It's also a blue moon. So there was a full moon on August 1st, I believe, and then now it's August 31st. So the phrase, once in a blue moon, was coming up in my mind. Also, I think it's a super moon. The moon is the closest to the Earth. It's been in a while. So, uh, some other, the phrase came up, once in a blue moon, wholesome qualities arise. Or once in a blue moon, things go our way. It does happen once in a while, sometimes. And these, there's environmental factors to, to how we feel, to how we're doing. Sometimes, like full moon. I've heard that uh, full moon, that's the, in emergency rooms, it's kind of like clockwork. Like a full moon, there'll be more, more people going to the ER. Um, the mind can be more kind of uh, unwieldy during the full moon. And, uh, and then sometimes we'll look at the weather, so that there's smoke in the air, so that can make people more irritable and uh, quicker to have kind of knee-jerk reactions to different situations. So that's just an environmental factor, so these conditions do matter. And I think we tend to underestimate how much external conditions have have an effect on us. Just something like the full moon, or smoke in the air, or a combination of those two. And we can feel a bit more tense, scattered. I know for me, when there's a lot of smoke in the air, then... Uh, like the body has, there's some tension in the body. So these these environmental factors, they, it's just one part of mindfulness, just taking note of environmental factors and just how do they affect us. And if we see that, then it's less likely we're going to take it out on other people. That We can see, oh, it's just these environmental factors. And then we can reflect on it. That, oh, yeah, it's just, this is, it's just this way. When there's smoke in the air, it feels like this. The experience is like this. When there's a full moon, it feels like this. The experience is like this. When there's a new moon, it's like this. And when it's cloudy, it's like this. When it's sunny, it's like this. And uh, sometimes the mood can be lower when it's cloudy and a sunny day can cheer us up, brighten, brighten the mind. And then sometimes also we can underestimate just our, our own conditioning, our own upbringing, how much like our parents we are, not just physically, but emotionally we'll, we'll tend to have the same emotional habits emotional reactions 
as our parents, and we might not be able to admit that at first, but then over time as we reflect on it, I know for myself, I'm kind of amazed sometimes at how like my parents I am. And yeah, not just physically, but emotionally as well. And we learn these things at a very young age and it just becomes this ingrained conditioning for us. But if we can see that with mindfulness and and know it, then we can work with it. And maybe not get caught up and stuck in the same unwholesome cycles, unwholesome habits that we maybe had before. So this is just practice. This is how we develop our practice. Tea time the other day, some people were asking me about what is, what's the experience like of being the abbot of a monastery. And uh, one person asked, like, what type of abbot are you? Do people fear you? And I said, I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> I'm not sure, though. You never know. And... Uh, yeah, it's kind of kind of an interesting question. As uh, yeah, for myself, just when I ordained, I never really saw myself really as a senior monk, or as a teacher, and or as a abbot of a monastery. So when I was a junior monk, it was just like trying to get by day to day, and uh, didn't really see myself in those roles or those positions. And coming to the monastery more with the intention of, okay, renunciation and not necessarily wanting to be in the public eye. And then how much different it is now as a teacher being more in the public eye and knowing more people, interacting with more people, a wider variety of people and giving teachings, giving instruction Whereas as a junior monk, it's more just trying to practice, trying to do this training and just going about the lifestyle here day by day, but uh, in more of a private way. I could, I could keep to myself. I could not be seen by the public and uh, could be more anonymous and maybe... I didn't really have the thoughts like, oh, um, yeah, what does the general public think of me? So that wasn't part of the experience then. The experience then was still kind of learning the ropes, learning how to be a monk, uh, learning about the precepts, and trying this or that in the meditation. And, uh, and so things change now it's now it's different now the experience of my life is completely different than it was as a junior monk and not at all how i imagined it might be as a junior monk it's hard to imagine being a senior monk it just seems so remote seems so far off And 
so so now there's a feeling like the stakes are a bit higher like uh say i if i have to give a teaching and i feel tired or don't feel like i want to do it there's just that sense of duty so just doing it anyway and just speaking about what com- what whatever is coming up and uh, sometimes there is that feeling of like oh yeah i'm tired or just uh there's a lot of smoke in the air so the mind isn't so clear and uh maybe maybe the talk won't be so interesting and then looking at the mental resistance that's happening to giving a talk and uh but then just kind of doing it anyway and that's what we do in this tradition in the long Cha tradition so we don't uh it's like this story of um, we could think of this story of ajahn Sumedho when uh, ajahn Chah was having him start to give talks and uh, giving a talk and talking for maybe half an hour 45 minutes and then ajahn Chah sitting there and oh, keep going keep going and uh it's the uh, Lunar Observance Day, so there was a maybe a number of people there. And then uh, he has them keep going. Talk gets less interesting. People start leaving. And uh, then he thought, okay, um, that's enough now. And Ajahn Chah wanted him to keep going, so he kept going. And then that pattern repeated itself a few more times. And after a few hours, there was only one person left in the audience. Everybody else had left. And... Uh, then he felt a bit more comfortable about giving talks after that, that it didn't really matter whether it was whether it was interesting or whether there was some sort of, whether it was profound or not profound. Just, okay, we'll just, whatever's coming up, we just speak in a uh, impromptu way. When we give talks, we don't really have, we don't have notes like a lecture. So I, I don't know if this would be classed as a lecture but it's just uh, Dhamma Desana, just a talk about um, whatever might, whatever, whatever might be useful in the moment. So there's this uh, idea to have a spirit rock retreat next year. Uh, Ajahn Amro invited me to co-teach with him next July, and we'll see if that happens. But uh, I like the the proposed theme of it, which is the it's the four noble truths. Do they still count? Are they still applicable? So it's like coming back to the basics, of the teachings, and this. Uh, the Four Noble Truths being the, uh, the First Noble Truth being the truth of suffering, of dukkha, and the uh, second being the cause of dukkha, which is tanha, craving, and the third, which is the cessation of craving, niroda, and the fourth Noble Truth being the path leading to the cessation of craving. This is something specific to Buddhas, this, this particular teaching.
and uh, something that he realized uh, on the night of his awakening. So, of course, yes, they're always applicable. The Four Noble Truths are always applicable. But sometimes we forget about them, so we have to kind of come back to this, especially the second noble truth, that craving is the cause of suffering. So we think of this uh, dissatisfaction, the sense of things aren't quite right with us, and then we look for very, the mind tends to go out looking for various causes for this, and then trying to remedy those causes. And of course, there's Because of ignorance, the mind is very misguided and we end up doing things that we think are going to lessen our suffering and they end up compounding it and making it worse. So because we think, okay, well, the, the Buddha said the cause of suffering is craving, so we have to remind ourselves of that all the time. Because uh, what the mind is, what the heart really believes, it doesn't really believe that yet. We haven't trained ourselves, so it doesn't really believe that. What it really believes is, you know, this person is the cause of my suffering. You know, this external situation is the cause of my suffering. That's what I think the cause of suffering is. You know, this person eating too loud is the cause of my suffering. This person who didn't do what I asked them to do is the cause of my suffering. This person who criticized me, that criticism is the cause of my suffering. Therefore, I need to seek out situations where I'll only be praised, then I won't suffer. So that's what we really believe deep down inside. That's what the heart really believes because it's not yet trained. What the heart really believes is that the worldly it's following the worldly winds, the worldly dhammas, and getting the worldly dhammas the way we might like them, which is an impossibility. It's an absurdity to to actually think that that ever could be, but that's that's where we're at. That's where, what we're starting with. So it's a radical taking of responsibility to say, me wanting things other to to be other than what they are is the cause of suffering and it's not just the cause of suffering for me but it's the cause of suffering for others as well because when when i have that sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are then it's inevitable that i'm going to be blaming others and that's going to be that's going to be a burden. That's going to create burdens for others as well. So this radical taking of responsibility for the dissatisfaction that we feel, that we feel the sense of things aren't quite right that we feel, and when we take responsibility for that, then we can start to, then we can build our practice, then we have something to work with. Because if, if, if our suffering actually came from outside, there's n- nothing we can really do about it. We can't just change the world. We can't just go around changing other people. But we can change ourselves. So once we realize, oh, it's coming from the heart, it's coming from inside, this experience is coming from inside, it's not coming from outside, it's the way I'm reacting to these external conditions that is causing this sense of dissatisfaction. 
lack of contentment or malcontent. And then realizing that, then it actually empowers us to do something about it. And we can. Yeah, we can look into it. So we can... This is where the Buddha's teachings come in really helpful. Sila Samadhi Panya. Okay, well, the Buddha said that if we take on precepts and meditate on a daily basis and develop wisdom, then we can start to gain insight into this. We can see it a bit more clearly. And letting go... So we hear this teaching about letting go, and I think of that as skillful response. We actually learn how to skillfully respond to these worldly situations that we come into contact with. When we learn how to skillfully respond, then our suffering can start to become less. But the the dukkha can be really strong, and it's kind of, kind of, we have to develop these other qualities as well of humility and an attitude of just being very humble and being able to admit these things to ourselves. It actually can be quite difficult to admit that we're suffering. And it's actually quite rare that we open up and admit to ourselves or, or talk about to others how we're really doing how we're really feeling so it just stays locked up inside and you know if we're in the monastery it's kind of frowned upon to be greedy or angry so if we experience those states we might think well I don't want anybody to know that I have those states so we might repress them and then it kind of spurts out in various ways over time but repression isn't really what we're looking for or a, or an expression of our greed or our anger. We, you know, that's the other extreme. Well, if I express it, maybe if I express it, it'll make it better. It's certainly not the case either. So Buddhist meditation, what it calls for is neither expressing it nor repressing it, but knowing it, knowing it with mindfulness, you know, bringing it into consciousness, acknowledging it, this is suffering. And then considering, investigating, where does this come from? But if we don't consider and investigate and we just continue just to, we might do a lot of sitting meditation, but what kind of meditation are we actually doing? If we, if we have the attitude that if I just sit long enough, something will happen, and we're just waiting for something to happen, that's just not how it works. It's not going to get any better. We actually do have to consider things, look into things. Okay, maybe, maybe today I can try focusing on the breath. How does that work? This is also the four dipadas, the chandavirya, chittavimangsa, the four bases of success. Can we be applying those to our practice all the time? Chanda meaning desire. We have to want to make progress. We have to want to develop wholesome qualities. Uh, 
that's chanda, virya, you know, putting some effort into it, you know, applying applying effort, actually making the effort to sit, making the effort to walk. Chitta, applica- putting our heart into it, application of mind. Vimangsa, reviewing, did it work? Did it, you know, how did, what was the result of that practice? What was the result of that action? So using Chandavirya Chittavimangsa to uh, to actually take stock of things and and how how are we developing? Yeah. And sometimes when we we might feel like oh I just there's so much work here and there's so much activity and so much happening. I just wish I could just take a a rest. I just wish I could just take a two-week retreat, a three-week retreat, a four-week retreat. But then we do that, and how does it go? How do we feel at the end of it? Is it any better? Sometimes if we go into a retreat with that attitude, at the end of it, it's like, well, is it any better? How did it go? That's vimangsa. That's the reviewing. I went and took a rest. How did that go? Is the mind bright? Is the mind clear afterwards? Yeah. Or did nothing, did it not help? Yeah. Chances are it didn't help. Because that's, but if we don't review, we won't really see those that, you know, what's working, what's not working. Or when I engaged in this or that activity, how did that go? Did it help? Was it good? Or did it cause the mind to just, you know, sink deeper into chaos and confusion? This is also part of the practice that we have to see the asada and the dinava, the asada being the benefit, the dinava being the drawback. Uh, the the way the mind is is just normal. This is how everybody, almost everybody is, is just looking at the, the gratification in the moment, not really thinking of the result. So, oh, yes, this is good right now. But then the result, is it worth it? So when we start to see the result more clearly, the mind starts to get trained. It's just, okay. Every time I do that, I suffer. And is it going to be, you know, part of my mind is saying, well, it's going to be different this time. But then the wisdom comes up to say, no, it's going to be the same every time. Give in to craving, it's going to be the same every time. So so not being afraid to use thought to review how are things actually going. How are these current environmental factors affecting me? Uh, you know, what is this development of mindfulness? How can I, how can I apply myself to it in a way that helps you know, lessen the craving? Helps helps to go against the craving, which is causing suffering. Uh, how can I see that more clearly?
how can I develop goodwill for myself? And whatever practices I've been doing to develop goodwill for myself, are they working or do I need to adjust them? So, so these are these are just some ideas or thoughts about uh, how to how to further consider developing the practice, reviewing, looking into environmental factors, and seeing you know how are how are things actually going, looking into those four noble truths, not not uh, letting them fall by the wayside, uh, craving uh, coming from the inside. It's not coming from the the outside, and uh, looking into this dukkha, how can we, how can we gain insight into it? So, also, we're uh, just as a brief note at the end, we're uh, preparing to go on our annual, what used to be our annual wilderness trip, where we go to Yosemite for uh, six nights of, of uh, camping and. Uh, practicing our forest tradition skills of setting up tents and gloths, living outside. And uh, we uh, haven't done this in the past. In the past few years, it's been a little bit um, disjointed how we've done this wilderness trip, but it hasn't really been the Yosemite trip as we did it in the past. So, so yes, uh, looking forward to that. We'll be taking off tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., is the plan, and uh, nine of us heading out. So, uh, so yeah, looking forward to practicing more in that in, in a different environment for a little bit of time. That's also part of our training: how to be open, how to be resourceful. Uh, the, there's wilderness bhikkhu protocols that we can that we study. If anybody's interested, they can look into. Buddhist Master Code Two, I think it's Chapter Fourteen. That uh, there's these different protocols that that uh, wilderness bhikkhus are supposed to know. So this is part of our uh, Vinaya study as well that we're doing during the Vasa. And so yeah, I'm a little bit worn out today, so I'll just uh, I think I'll just leave it there for this evening. <laughs>